He is risen. The tomb is empty. He is risen indeed. What do you think of when you hear those words, He is risen? Is it just the empty tomb? Certainly that's part of it, isn't it? The fact that He lives on, even now in this present day, we know that He lives. Do you think about that? Do you think about the consequences that all of us have been able to enjoy as a result of the fact that the tomb is empty and that He lives and reigns and is seated at the Father's right hand, making intercession for you. Does that give you any cause for rejoicing? I pray that that would be the case. I want to focus today on that very thing. You know, the word rejoice, or any root of the word rejoice or joy, is found in the Bible almost 500 times. I get from that that God wants us to be very, very joyful. In fact, joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, it tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, and the rest of them that follow. But joy is among those characteristics that we all should be manifesting in our lives throughout the days that we live. Joyfulness. Peter tells us that we have been given unspeakable joy and full of glory. Now, that does not mean that we're going to be always happy. Happiness is not the same as joyfulness. The joyfulness that I'm referring to is an inner joy that comes from the Spirit's presence in our lives. And it's not necessarily the same as being happy. Or we can be happy and have joy, but we can have joy and not be happy. There's a difference, a distinction that we should all be making with those two words. Happiness is an emotion. We're happy when things are going well. We're not very happy when things aren't going well. But yet, when things aren't going well, we still should have that joy. James tells us that we're to count it all joy even when we are experiencing tribulation. And friends, in this world today, you should know, Jesus said it, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, he said. In other words, rejoice. Because I, Jesus says, have overcome the world. So when we look at the passage that we heard this morning in Matthew chapter 28, and we find that according to Matthew, Jesus introduced himself to the women who had come to the empty tomb, and they were walking away wondering what's going on. They didn't have a clue. They were indeed very, very concerned because it was not clear to them that Jesus, even though he had said so, Three other occasions he had told his disciples, I will be put to death, I will be put in a grave, I will be raised again on the third day. They did not get it. The men weren't even around. They were hiding. It was the women who came to the tomb in order to anoint his body, they thought. But they didn't know how in the world they could ever possibly roll away that large stone that was closing them from their being able to enter into the tomb to perform that Jewish tradition of uh, anointing the body. But Matthew gives us something uniquely in his presentation of these things that took place on that first day of the week. All the gospel records are unique in that sense. They have a different 
perspective, if you will, a different few things that they put into the text of their writings that aren't in Matthews, and some of the ones that are in Matthews are not in the others. And that's okay, because that gives us a more complete picture. And there's perfect harmony in those four Gospels with regard to all of the events that took place in those first hours of that Sunday morning. Again, it was the first day of the week, and that is Sunday, and it is there that Jesus first spoke to these women. But I'm also reminded that when Jesus began his earthly ministry, three and a half years before this event, the one word that he approached his believers with, the very first word that he spoke to the multitude was, Repent. Repent. And those people that followed him knew that he was speaking truth. They believed what he had spoken. They counted him as a great prophet. They counted him as a teacher of Israel, beyond all of those who had ever been known among the people of Israel during their day. But yet they did not understand the complete truth about who he was. That was yet to come. John will admit that in his gospel writing. He'll simply say that even though they, they were witness, they went into the grave, John and Peter, they saw the claws lying there, they saw the wrapping sheet that he was put into, empty, and they came out of that tomb being bewildered because he wasn't there. And they didn't know why. And John explains, because they did not yet know all the truth even though Jesus had spoken those things. It was not until the Spirit of God came that they then understood. They then had the Spirit of God enabling them to understand, to teach them, to guide them in all truth. And it was from that day on that the Word of God went forth in power and the truth of God's Word was complete. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that his purpose in reaching out to the Gentiles was to let them know the true gospel. And he explained to them what that gospel is. That Christ came, that Christ died, and that Christ was risen again. He is risen. And Paul says that if that is not true, then we're all doing things in a futile manner. Listen to what Paul says. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And believe me, there are a lot of people who are saying that very thing in our world today. Then Paul goes on and says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Okay, if that's the way it is, then it's true. Christ can't be risen if there's no resurrection. He's using very, very strong logic here. He says further, he says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, We're found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Paul gets a little wordy here, but he's saying very wonderful truths in this passage. He goes on to say, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Woe is me. Christ is not risen. I'm still living in sin. I have not been forgiven of my sins. I have no fellowship opportunity with God because I'm a sinful man. And all of you who are sitting in this audience here today are in your sins if Christ did not raise from the dead. Simple truth. The raising of Jesus Christ 
is God's affirmation that this is finished. The work that Jesus did on the cross. It is true that when Jesus was on the cross and He spoke those last words, it is finished. That is what He meant. The price has paid, has been paid in full. Tetelestai is the word that is used in the original language. And it means paid in full. The debt that you and I owed, that we could not pay, He paid for us. Oh, this is great news. Paul goes on to say, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And then he says, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Everyone who's gone to the grave already, who lived their lives believing in the resurrection, if there is none, then they're in the grave and there's no reason to think that anything's going to happen besides the bodies rotting in those graves. But, Paul goes on to say, finally, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and of us and of all who will come after us. He is the first fruits. Do you know what that means? It's a reference to one of the feasts of Israel found in the book of Leviticus. Moses explains that the people of Israel immediately following the day of Passover for a period of seven days were to eat unleavened bread. And during that one week where they were to eat unleavened bread, there was the Sunday that followed the Passover within that week that would be considered a holy day. And it was called First Fruits. Take note of the fact that it was a Sunday, the first day of the week. The first Sunday following Passover. Do you realize the Jews still uh, worship God and observe those feasts, and they did so just this week. Wednesday was their Passover celebration day. First fruits for the Jews is today. First fruits for the Christian is today. He is risen. And that's what it means that He is the first fruit. First fruit simply means He's the first of a certain kind. There's no other who has ever lived who has died and been raised from the dead in a new body, in a glorified body, not the same body as what they had originally. That is what resurrection is. There were many people that have died and according to the scripture, several were raised up, recuperated, resuscitated from the dead. They lived in their mortal bodies still, but they were brought back to life. That's not resurrection. That's resuscitation. The resurrection body is a new body. It's a different body. It's a completely glorified body. And Jesus manifests that glorified body before all of His people that trusted in Him, who loved Him, who learned from Him in that life that they lived following after Him. After the resurrection, He appeared to many. First, here in this record that Matthew gives to these women who came to the tomb, he appeared to the apostles. He appeared privately to Peter and James. He appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. He appeared to over 500 men and women in Galilee on a mountain before he ascended into heaven. For those 40 days that he was on the earth, he appeared several times in several different places. There is no way to discount all of the proof that is given in the Word of God. He is risen. And the tomb is empty. And you can go to Jerusalem, you will not find the bones of Jesus. No matter how hard they try to disprove that, 
There are many who have done so. Legal minds have in, 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 injected into these words all of their understanding to come to a conclusion. Men like Josh McDowell, who wrote that wonderful book, a Christian book, evidence that deserves... Yes. Thank you. The evidence is there. And it's very clear. A verdict is necessary. What do we make for a verdict? Is it true or is it not true? That's the problem the world has to face. But remember, Jesus again began his ministry with the word repent. And here in Matthew's gospel, although the other gospels don't use this very same example or incident that is recorded in Matthew's gospel, and by the way, it's probably not in every one of your translations the way it is in mine. I accept that, but I've looked into the original language and I'm convinced that the new King James has it right. I just happen to say that because I believe the new King James has it right. So if you're looking at an NIV, you might see that instead of rejoice, Jesus' words were greetings. That's kind of a loose translation. It's kind of like Jesus said, hi there, it's me. A normal greeting that you might expect anytime, anywhere in that culture. There's deeper thought in this, and I believe that the New King James got it right here. I'm not saying they get it right every time, but I think they got it right here. The New Translations translated the words that are in the original language in this place where Jesus greets these women with rejoice. Oh, that's why I want to understand how it is that any one of us could not rejoice over the wonderful things that we have in the Word of God to convince us of the power of God to save us, that convince us of the power of God to deliver us from all evil, to set us free with this truth of His Word. Jesus again came to them and He said, Rejoice! Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see Me. These women were the first to know. And Jesus invites them to go and tell all of the disciples, His brethren. I like that. Jesus is their Lord. But He calls them His brothers. Something's different now. Something has changed. Something has gotten far better than what it was before. Jesus had told them in John's Gospel, recorded in chapter 14, You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house, I have prepared for you a house, a mansion, if you will, a dwelling place. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I will have you come to me also, that where I am, you may be. See, God wants fellowship with those who believe. Every one of us have this opportunity before us to, in this life, serve Him with gladness, with joy, all the days of our lives. So if we have truly repented, then we will indeed be able to rejoice. We should be rejoicing. It is part of who we must be as believers. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, Paul tells the Philippians. I believe two weeks ago, our brother Richard Thrasher delivered a message on that whole book of Philippians. And in that book of Philippians, there is that wonderful verse in chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. He says elsewhere in First Thessalonians chapter 5 that it is absolutely 
possible not to rejoice. Rejoice in all things. Praise the Lord for all things. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. Rejoice. Rejoicing isn't just a matter of choosing. It's a matter of choosing with commitment. And so Paul tells us that we should rejoice. Again, James tells us that we count it all joy no matter what we're having to face. Now, I'm reminded, as I've looked at the news this last week, there's a lot going on in this world that really doesn't give credence to a joyfulness in our soul. Take a look at what's happening around Israel right now. Just yesterday and a few days before, rockets had been flying into Israel on a regular basis, not only from the Gaza Strip. That was bad enough. That was typical of the Palestinians whenever something at the Temple Mount took place that displeased them, that they thought they could take advantage of to sway public opinion. And so they instigated a riot at the Temple Mount, causing the Jewish police to come and settle the issue And as a result of that, the Palestinian rockets start flying. Now, that's happened many, many times before. That's not unusual. That's what they would expect. The Iron Dome takes care of all of that. Just this last week, rockets began flying from Lebanon. That's north of Israel. Gaza is in the south. Now we've got two fronts where rockets are flying toward Israel. That is very, very unsettling. That's not normal. There's something going on. Just last night, rockets began flying from Syria. It's apparent, according to statistics that are available to those who watch these things, that there are about 250,000 rockets aimed at Israel. 250,000 rockets. Israel is about the size of New Jersey. The population centers in Israel amount to about 20% of the total land mass. So there's a very small area or group of areas in the nation of Israel where people live and they're all targets. You know who's behind it? Iran. Why? Because Iran wants Israel to be extinguished. I got news for you, Mr. Kamini. God is not going to let that happen. All of these things to say, how can I rejoice when all these troubles are happening all around us? And I haven't begun to tell all of what I was thinking about, so I'm going to continue. What about Ukraine? What about North Korea? What about China and Taiwan? What about What's going on in northern Africa? What about what's going on in this nation? What about what's going on in Canada? What's happening in France? What's happening in all of Europe? Why are these happening? And how can I rejoice in all this trouble that I'm experiencing or that the world is experiencing? Where can we find joy in all of these things? The Word of God. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Well, I I don't know if I can. Well, you've got the Spirit of God living in you, you can. 
That's just a fact. It's the Word of God. You either believe it and apply it, or you don't believe it, and perhaps you haven't repented. Perhaps you haven't been able to rejoice because you didn't first repent. That's the ticket. That's the way it is done. You first must repent. Jesus began His ministry with that Word, and then after His resurrection, now you can rejoice. If you haven't repented, you can't rejoice. I'd like to put it this way. Repent and rejoice, or reject and regret. Choice is yours. Choice is mine. I believe I made the right choice. I hope you all did too. We have a living Savior. And yes, we can rejoice in the midst of all of those sorrows, in the midst of all of those difficulties that we have to face, whether it's financial difficulty, whether it's losing our jobs, or or finding food for our tables, or heat for our homes. If those things begin to happen, what is going to be our response? Oh, woe is me. That's not joyfulness. Be joyful in all things. Friends, there's no other way. There's no other way. Psalm 40. Verse 10, verse 16 says this. Let all those who seek you be sad. No, it doesn't say that. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. In Psalms 42 and 43, David writing these psalms in a very low state of his life, saying, Why are you so cast down, O my soul? Why are you feeling so down and distraught over the things that are happening in the world? He said, Put your hope in God. He's speaking to himself. He's slapping himself in the face. He says, Oh, soul, put your hope in God. And then you'll be able to realize that He indeed is able to deliver you and to set you upon a rock that is higher than you and that He is able to take you out of that miry clay that you find yourself in. And you can walk with Him in the cool of the day and you can experience the wonderful joy that is available to you because you believe in what He has done. That's what God wants from each of us. It makes Him joyful when we're joyful. It doesn't please God when we're moping all day long over those circumstances that we're having to deal with. Be joyful. Now again, that does not mean that you have to be happy with what's going on. I'm not happy with the fact that there are so many people dying. That bothers me tremendously. I'm not happy about the fact that we're still aborting babies to the tune of over 60 million and counting. I'm not happy about the fact that there are people who are forcing down our throats this gay, lesbian attitude that says, we don't care what you think, we're going to live in this lifestyle and we're going to put it in your face and rub it as hard as we can in your face because that's the way we will always be. That's the way we always have been. Why? Because they know it's not right, but they're making it look as though it's right. And that's why Isaiah said, In the last days, they will say what was good is bad, and they will say what is bad is good. They've got it backwards. They've got it backwards. But you can have joy in spite of that. You can rejoice in the fact that Jesus is risen. You can rejoice in the fact that the tomb is empty. In this life, we all will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, Jesus says. I've said this again and again and again. 
These are the words of Jesus. He has overcome the world. What more do we want? What more do we need? We don't need Him to confirm in our hearts the truth that He has presented to us through His Word. We have a great heritage. We have promises in the Word of God. We have hope, a blessed hope, that He's returning. Paul calls it the blessed hope in Titus' letter. We have that hope in Him. David said, My hope is in you, in Psalm 39. And again in Psalms 42 and 43, over and over again, he said, Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. We have hope. And that hope gives us that sense of joy to know that His Word is true. And what we hope for isn't an kind of hope that says, I think so. That's not the kind of hope that the Word of God speaks of. The Word of God speaks of hope as an assurance, something that's written solid. It will not be taken away. It is true. We have hope in Christ and there is no reason to doubt. But some still do. I'd like to read on from Matthew chapter 28 where Sandy left off this morning, beginning again with verse 11. Now while they were going... Behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Matthew gives this sidebar about the events that took place on that first day, speaking of the fact that the soldiers who were there at the tomb, guarding the tomb, were not told how many soldiers there were. Some say a certain number, some say another number. I just know that there was more than a few soldiers there. They were there to guard. They were not the temple guard. They were Roman soldiers. The temple guard only had jurisdiction in the temple area exclusively. That was the restriction that the Romans had placed on them. When the elders came to Pilate to ask for, as we read in chapter 27, two, three weeks ago, they requested a guard to protect the tomb from those who might come and steal the body. They had believed that Jesus had said he would be raised again on the third day. They didn't want that to happen. So they wanted a guard there to prevent that from happening. Well, the guard was put there. And take note of what took place. They were there and an earthquake took place. And according to Matthew, an angel came and rolled away the stone. Those Roman soldiers were all there. None of them were sleeping, I'm sure. They had to have been wide awake with those kinds of events taking place. There's no question in my mind, and I hope that's the case in your mind as well, that these Roman soldiers knew something supernatural had just taken place. And they went to the Pharisees and elders and said, Hey guys, we had nothing to do with this. The tomb is empty. We were there. We saw all of those things. But they, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, whoever else was gathered there at that time, they did not believe. They rejected. Am I right in thinking that because they rejected 
they will regret it, reject it, and regret it. The disciples still didn't get it. They didn't understand. But they knew that Jesus had said, repent. And because they did repent and followed after him, he was merciful and poured out his grace upon them, and his spirit came upon them, and they were able then to rejoice. Repent and rejoice. Regret if you reject. I don't know how many of the soldiers were able to tell that lie, but they were given a great sum of money to do so. Perhaps some of them did come to the Lord after those events. None of us knows now, but we will, I believe, someday. And lastly, I want to look at the disciples themselves. The Great Commission given here in verse 16 following, it says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The resurrected Christ, he's already appeared to them on more than one occasion, and now he's appearing to them in Galilee, and he's going to be giving them a commission to go out into all the world, but some doubted. Now the word for doubted here is again a unique word in the New Testament. It's only found in one other place, although the word translated doubt is in several places in the New Testament. It's always based upon another Greek word, but this particular Greek word means to waver. And the only other time, again, that it was used was when Peter asked the Lord to allow him to come out on the water. Remember that? They were in a storm in the midst of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walked on the water. They finally realized it's Jesus. And Peter said, Lord, if it's you, allow me to come out onto the water with you. And Jesus said, come. And so Peter steps out of the boat and begins to walk on the water. And miraculously, he doesn't sink until he starts looking around at the waves and the, and the winds and the rain. And as soon as he did that, taking his eyes off, the Jesus, off of Jesus, he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, help me. And Jesus took him by the hand. And they both got into the boat. As Jesus did that, what did he say? Oh, why did you doubt? Same word. Why did you waver, Peter? You were doing okay until you started looking around. Peter, you should have kept your eyes on me. Don't waver, friends. Don't drift from the truth that God has given to you in His Word. Don't allow yourself to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Don't allow yourself to turn away from the truth that God has presented to you. He is risen. Amen. Yes, indeed, He has. So the Great Commission is this. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That final word of Jesus gives me great joy. Does it you? When you read these words, Lo, I am with you always, does that convey a sense of His presence always being nearby, always being available? Because He is. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. He is with you. You may not feel that. You may not know that intuitively, but He is indeed with the believer always. The Bible tells us that He is like the Spirit in other places. He is in you. The Father is in you. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, in you, dwelling in you. 
to help you, to lead you in the path that you should be staying on, and to give you the joy, unspeakable and full of glory, that Peter talks about. It's real. It's available to all. It's yours just by believing. He lives. And because He lives, we will live also. We're in these mortal bodies, and unless He comes for His church, and I believe that He is going to come for His church very soon, based on what's happening in the world around us, but if He tarries much longer, and some of us may end up going into the grave, breathing our last, and so what? We die physically. Our bodies go into the grave. Our souls go to be with Him. We're saved. We're in His presence forever. No matter whether we live in this body or whether we're going into eternity after that day of His appearing. Whatever the case may be, we have life. Eternal life. He who believes in Me shall never die, Jesus said. Take that seriously. Take that wherever you go. Let that truth shine in you. Let the Word of God fill you with such great assurance in the promises, all the promises that God has made to you. And there are many. You have an inheritance. Rejoice in that inheritance. You have been given the promise of being adopted into the family of God. Embrace it and enjoy the wonderful, precious gift of life that God has given to you as a member of His family. You are His bride. Let there be a rejoicing in that truth. Let there be a rejoicing in the fact that He has done all things well. And though we're living today in this world, in this terrible, dark age, there is light and that light comes from Him and shines through you and me. As long as we have that joy unspeakable and full of glory, there is no way the world will not know that you are a believer in Christ. So let's do it, people. Let's shine the light brightly in these last hours. Let's be joyful. Let's have a time of rejoicing every single day of our lives. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He has conquered death. And we will be like Him. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, our vile bodies, this rag, this temporary tent, is falling apart. I know it. You know it. You feel it probably just as much as I do, perhaps even more so. But it's true. This outer body is decaying. But the inner man, the soul that has been saved, is the inner man that is being renewed day by day so that you are indeed more than a conqueror. Rejoice in it. You are indeed an overcomer. Rejoice in it. You are indeed a child of God. Oh, rejoice in it. For He is risen. And we will be like Him. I don't know about you, but when I read the Word of God, I see something about the resurrected body of Jesus that simply blows my mind when I think, that's what I'm going to be like? Remember when He came to the disciples on that first day of the week in the evening. The doors and windows were locked, barred. They didn't want anybody entering into their little assembly. They were fearful. They thought the Romans would come and get them and crucify them because they had already crucified their leader. They were very, very troubled men. 
They did not want to be found out. And then all of a sudden, somebody appears in the middle of the room. Jesus did. They thought it was a ghost. They couldn't believe it. Wow, this can't be so. Until Jesus said, no, wait a minute, guys. It's me. Touch me. Put your hands in where the holes, put put your finger in the holes in my hands. How about my side? Put your hand in my side. See that it is me. Do you have any meat? Jesus said. He wanted to let them know that he was every bit as much human as they were, except for one thing. He didn't need to open the door or a window. He just appeared. How else do you think he got out of the tomb? It wasn't because he had to wait for the angel to roll the stone away. That wasn't how he got out. That stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. To let us see that the tomb is empty. Because he is risen. Blessed be his holy name. We have a living hope, friends, because our intercessor, Jesus, is seated at the right hand, making intercession for us. And we can live for him. And yes, we may fail. Yes, we may have issues in our lives that cause us to stumble and fall and turn away temporarily, I hope, from the Lord, from serving him, from doing his will. But the bottom line is this. He is there for you. Available whenever you want to turn back to Him. And if you've left Him for any reason, for any period of time, now is the time. Now is the day of salvation for you. Now is the time when you can come to Him and say, Lord, forgive me. And when you do that, in faith, you will have great joy because you will have forgiveness of your sins. Because that's His promise. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness if you confess your sins to Him. So that's the story. That's the wonderful news. That's the gospel. He died. He rose again for you and for me. Because He lives, we live also. These are the truths that we can be so very, very joyful about all the days of our lives. Oh, people, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. For this is the will of God concerning you. So, those of us who have repented, we have every reason to rejoice. If we've chosen to reject, if we've chosen to reject, we regret. Repent, rejoice. Reject, regret. All I can say is, Let's be joyful. Let's rejoice together in these last hours. If there's anyone here who doesn't have that comprehension of what God has done in their lives, I would just simply make an offer to you. I've mentioned it already. Today is the day of salvation. Choose today to repent and you will find joy. Even in the midst of all that's going on in your life, you may feel miserable I'm not talking about feelings. I'm talking about faith. I'll give a moment of time for somebody, anybody, to come up here and ask for prayer. Whether it's to return to the God that you had started to serve but have turned away from for a season, for however long. If it's just a matter of confirming in your heart that you have the Holy Spirit and you are wanting to see Him work in your life, come and pray for that. If you are here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, come and pray for that. But I open the opportunity for anybody here on this very special day because the tomb is empty, because He is risen. 
you can believe it and speak it and know it and live it all the rest of your days. So come, let's pray together.